Uh, you know, as I mentioned when we started our Advent series a few weeks ago, that I was really feeling called that we just stay within this, this gospel of Luke and just track the life of Jesus from, from Christmas to Easter. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to be within the gospel of Luke, as far as I can tell, uh, from now all the way through the third week in May. And I had somebody ask me the other day, why Luke? And that's a really great question. And I don't have a very great answer. I, I just feel that this is where the Spirit is, is leading me. And I think this is where he wants us to be as a church for, for the next few months. And I've never preached uh, from just one book of the Bible for, for such a long period of time. Um, and so many of you may feel like this is a little awkward for you, and it is for me. But I, I, think, I think that what we can do is come to this new year and just challenge the gospel to speak directly into our lives in, in all the, the vast different places where you are as, as people uh, of this church and people of this community. But challenge the gospel to speak to your life uh, as we go through this. And I promise you this, that the gospel will absolutely speak directly into your life, no matter, no matter where you are, no matter what's, what's happening in it. And I'm excited. I'm excited about this journey of, of watching how Jesus uh, discovers his identity as a child, as he prepares for ministry in the desert, as he enters into this ministry in Galilee. We're going to join him as he begins his journey to Jerusalem. We'll be there when the crowds uh, cheer and welcome him on Palm Sunday. We'll cower at the foot of the cross, and we'll dance. Uh, when we find that the tomb is empty. It's going to be a terrific journey, and uh, I hope that you'll commit to to be part of this journey as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Now, there are two questions that I would challenge you to bring to the text every week that we're in the Gospel of Luke. The first question is, who was this man? I am absolutely convinced that Luke went through uh, the research and the careful study of of all of the history to answer this one question specifically. Who was this man? Who was Jesus Christ? And the second question is one that's always meaningful and always appropriate to bring to the text, and that is, who are we? Who am I? In light of who Jesus is, who then does that suggest that I am? And every time you come to the text, bring these two questions. Who is that man? And who am I? If Jesus is the atonement for human sins, then that means that we have the opportunity to observe the one who died for us and saved us from our sin. If Jesus is still alive, that means that the Holy Spirit is still moving and shaping us for God's kingdom purpose. So it all comes down to this. To know who we are and who we are becoming, we must first understand the one who made us and redeemed us. And according to the Bible, that person is knowable, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then just one last thing before we jump into the series. If ever there was a time for you to invite a friend to just come and hear the gospel and and to bring these two questions with them, who is this Jesus Christ and who am I, this would be a great time. And I just want to challenge you. I'll give you an assignment. If you're a member of this church, that if you would ask God to reveal to you just one person who you feel needs to hear the gospel and, and has these questions of who was this man and who am I and invite them to come. You know, and if that person... Um, says no, then invite them again and again. Offer them to, you know, off, offer to buy them lunch or, or give them a free copy of our Fertile Desert series or, you know, shovel their driveway when it snows. I don't know, but don't take no for an answer. You know, if that same person was dying from a simple sinus infection, 
you would pursue that person relentlessly to visit a doctor and get an antibiotic. Listen, if people are far from Christ, if they're living without the knowledge of a savior in this world, then they suffer from a condition that is far more deadly and painful than a sinus infection. They need the great physician. So bring that person to meet the one within the Gospel of Luke who heals and forgives and resurrects and restores. You are not responsible for making a person believe in Jesus Christ. You are responsible to invite them to hear the Gospel and to demonstrate the Gospel in their lives. I know that's intimidating. It's still intimidating for me. But I believe that God will show us exactly the right person to ask if we will just lift that up to the Lord and say, would you show me and help me to have the courage to ask this person and invite them to hear the gospel? It's always God's will for people to hear the word of God. All right, so what I'm gonna do this morning is I'm gonna cover the whole rest of chapter two. We're gonna cover a ton of scripture. I'm gonna read some of it. I'm gonna summarize some of it and point to some individual scriptures because it, it really would take a long time for us to read all of it. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Luke. If you don't have your Bibles with you, they're in the pew in front of you. And since you know where we're going to be, it would be so great if you would, if you would bring your Bible uh, to church over the, over the next several months and just you know, bring a pencil or highlighter and really just mark it up. Because the Gospel of Luke, if there was ever a place that you just wanted to feel comfortable and really know a, a, a book of the Bible, the Gospel of Luke is it. It, it probably is. You know, it's been called the, the most beautiful book ever written. And, and I believe that, that that's probably true. And so if you would, just commit yourself to learning Luke as we go through um, the next few months. I, I wish we could go verse by verse all the way through the book. I, I feel led to do Christmas to Easter as the book ends, as we kind of trace the life of Jesus Christ from, from birth to death and resurrection. But we're going to go through a lot of Luke, and you're going to want to take some notes and, and mark things up. So let's get started. In verse 21, and, and we're just going to look at the childhood and the youth of Jesus Christ because Luke pretty much is the authoritative voice on, on the childhood and, and, and the youth of Jesus Christ. We don't have a lot written about it. But let's begin in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Now, I don't know how many of you had a name that was ready for your child when your child was born. I know that our son went at least an hour before we could make up our minds, uh, our first one. He was just baby boy West for a while. But in the Jewish custom, what would happen is that when the child was born, that was day one. And they would count the seven more days. There'd be eight total days. And it wasn't until the eighth day that the child was ever named. And if it was a boy, that boy would be brought to the temple circumcised as a male, and then given a name. And that custom was traced all the way back to Genesis 17, 12. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second, because you may not have picked up on this. But December is 20, uh, you know, December 25th, as you know. So if that's day one, you got the 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, and then on the eighth day is January 1. Did you realize that we celebrate New Year's every year and that day, really, the celebration is this is the day that Jesus, the name Jesus Christ, came into the world. Did you realize that December 21st, 25th, and January 1st, the two days in the whole world where the world just shuts down, are both owned by Jesus Christ? Who was this man? That is the question that you have to, you have to bring to the text. And according to this text... This man was to be named Jesus. 
which means the one who saves. Now, we'll continue on. There's so much here. In verses 22 and 24, we read, When the time of their, purifi- uh, of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there's two different ceremonies that are happening here, and I know some of you are thinking, you know, I don't really care about Jewish ceremonies. That really doesn't apply to my life. Well, be patient. This is important. You see, first, Jesus is consecrated to the Lord in obedience to Exodus 13.2 which states that the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me. Now, according to Jewish custom, not only would Jesus be consecrated to the Lord, but they would have paid five shekels to redeem the firstborn according to Numbers 18.15. It doesn't say that they did, but that's pretty much assumed within the text. Then the other ceremony that's happening here, the other reality, is that because childbirth is messy and kind of bloody, that the mother, and probably in this case Joseph, since he was there with her when Jesus was born, you know, in the, uh, in the, back in the cave, that, that they both would need to be, uh, they, they would go through a period of being considered unclean. Uh, the mother would be deemed unclean for seven days, and then she would be unworthy of approaching all holy things for another 33 days. After that time, she would offer up a sacrifice Uh, which would kind of redeem her uncleanliness and make her clean again. And the sacrifice would include a lamb and then a dove or a pigeon. So those were the two things that would be presented. If she wasn't wealthy enough to afford a lamb, then she could just give two birds, uh, two doves or or two pigeons. Now, if you were wondering where, you know, the two turtle doves comes from in the 12 days of Christmas, that's it. And and that's just for free. You don't have to write that down. Uh, It's profound. Uh, but what you need to see that that is important is that Mary was too poor to offer a lamb. So you all always hear about the fact that Jesus was raised in poverty, that he was very poor. And this is one of the things that helps us to understand that, that if, they, if Mary had come from a wealthy family or if she and Joseph had some degree of wealth, they would have offered a lamb and a dove or a lamb and a pigeon. Instead, they just offered the two birds. And so that, that tells us that that's a poor family. Luke is careful to demonstrate through telling that they did these things, kind of the point, I think, behind it is that Mary and Joseph were good, God-fearing Jewish people. They were not renegades or somehow anything other than, than standard Jewish citizens. Now, why is that important? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says later in Galatians 4.4. He says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. See, Luke wants us to see and helps us to understand that that Jesus was born under the law. If he came from outside of the law, the Jews would have just said, this person is a Gentile, they don't don't exist, they don't live under the covenant, they're not part of the chosen people. But Jesus is, he's fully Jewish, and he is the only person to satisfy God's law, to live a human life that is fully in obedience to God the law of God, which is the law of Moses and the prophets. He has no guilt or shame, and yet he will die under the law to redeem those under the law, as well as those outside of the law, which would be the Gentiles. So who was this man? First thing you need to write down is he was a Jew. 
And it's so important to remember. You know, we, we do get criticized as Christian preachers from time to time of just preaching the New Testament and really not acknowledging the fact that Jesus was raised in a context and environment and he was very Jewish. And that's important to understand because as we get into Jesus' teachings, he's always drawn upon the law of Moses and the prophets because he was a Jew. And that's, that is who he was. Now, as we read verses 25 through 35, we come into this very short and unique story, a lot of power in the story, because Mary and Joseph are in the temple courts doing what they're, they're doing, these ceremonies of, of sacrifice and consecration. And there they meet a man named Simeon. And Simeon is this a character we know nothing about outside of right here in the Gospel of Luke. And he's described by Luke as a righteous and devout man, a man filled with the Holy Spirit. According to Luke, the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simon, uh, Simeon that he would see the Lord's Christ before he died. So this is a man who's been looking. He's been waiting. He's been watching. He's been praying for that moment when, and, and how would he even know when he saw but at this moment, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon into the temple courts at the very time that Mary and Joseph are there with the baby, and, and he knows it immediately. And he takes the child away from Mary, and he says these words. He prays to God. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. You get the idea that he's been waiting a long time. He may have been waiting to die, <laughs> uh, but God wouldn't let him die until he had fulfilled this promise that he could see uh, the Lord's Christ. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is actually a song. Remember, we had Mary's song and Zechariah's song. This is Simeon's song. It actually has a Latin name. It's not as famous as the Magnificat. It's known as the Nunc Dimittis which is part of a larger Latin phrase, nunc dimittis servum tuum, which meaning, Lord, now you are dismissing your servant in peace. So we apply our question, who was this man to Simeon's nunc dimittis? And we find really four key observations. Number one, that Jesus is God's act of salvation. This is the plan. It is Jesus Christ. This is what Simeon's been waiting to see, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's answer, the Messiah, the one who saves, and his name is Jesus. Number two, this salvation is in plain sight for all people. This isn't some secret. It's not some great mystery. It's not uh, anything ambiguous. Right from the get-go, even as a baby, he very publicly states for everyone in the temple, this is the Messiah. Number three, Jesus will be a revelation that brings light to the non-Jews. This probably is the first time that we've heard this. We've heard that it would be good news for all the people, but now he specifically says he will be a light. This will be applicable and relevant even to people who are outside of the Jewish law and culture. And four, Jesus will be a source of glory for God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. All right? So those four insights come out of Simeon's song. Now, these insights are really pretty similar to what we've already heard. Where did we hear most of this before? We heard it from the angels, right? The angels said these things to Mary and Joseph. They said it to the shepherds, and the shepherds went out and told everyone that they could. And the effect of Simeon's words are pretty much the same effect that, that the shepherds had and then the people who heard the shepherds. There's a sense of marvel and amazement. You know, so what, what are we seeing? We're seeing that you had testimony from the lowly shepherds. Now you have the same message from this 
from this man who is very righteous and devout, who's in the temple, a man who had been waiting for the consolation of, of Israel. Now, what I want you to start tracking is a pattern, a pattern and a consistency of the message of this identity that is being revealed. Mary's son will be the son of God, and he will save people from their sins. This is what the angel told Mary. This is what the angel told Joseph from Matthew's account. This is what the angels told the shepherds. This is what the shepherds told everybody. And now you have another instance of this man, Simeon, saying the same thing. Why the redundancy? Well, think about Mary and Joseph. I mean, it's one thing to have a dream. It's another thing to have a bunch of shepherds barge into your bedroom. It's another thing to have this man you don't know confront you in the temple, take the baby out of your arms, and start praising God and very publicly saying, this is the Messiah. You see, God is going through great lengths to communicate the same message over and over again to Mary and Joseph, as well as to anyone who will listen. This child is God's son. He is the Messiah. He's going to change everything. Now, if you read the story carefully, and you get to verse 34, after he has said this, it's, verse 33 says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them, them, Mary and Joseph, now listen, and said to Mary. Now, most of us have breezed through that, but as, as I prayed and thought about this, the way I think this happened is, Simeon takes the baby, he makes this very public pronouncement and, and prayer to God about this is God's act of salvation, a light to the Gentiles, glory to the Jews, all of that. What does he do with the baby? He puts the baby back in Joseph's arms. He blesses them. But then there's, there's this sense, I think, that he very privately turns to Mary. Maybe Joseph is dealing with the baby, you know, and he turns to Mary. And he says very specifically, and I think maybe even as a whisper to her, he says these words. And, it, you know, if, you, if you're a big fan of the Lord of the Rings, this is like the elven king prophecy kind of deal. And he says, this child, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is a foreboding message. It's, it's revealing a very sober reality that raising this child named Jesus will not be an easy reality. It will, it will change Mary. He will change the world. But it won't be easy. People will love him or they'll hate him. Jesus will force the issue. He will reveal the true nature of people's hearts. He will be a source of controversy. Many will crash against this man, while others will be lifted up and exalted by his life. And for Mary, this journey will bring with it tremendous pain. The word that uh, Simeon uses here for, the, for, for sword is, in the Greek, it's called rumphaya, which denotes a, a large sword. A, a very brutal, large soldier's kind of sword, not the small blade commonly referred to as the machaira, which uh, is also found several times in Luke 22, the kind that Peter draws out. So who is this man? This man, Jesus, was the one who would bring clarity and light 
His teachings, though, would create conflict. People's intentions and motives would be revealed by his light, and his path would include immense suffering. Thus would also be the fate of his mother as well. You know, it's got to shake Mary up to get this news. But before she has an opportunity to react, at the very same moment that Simeon has just whispered this foreboding prophecy to her, Luke tells us that this old woman, Anna, who he refers to as a prophetess, comes and and begins to also speak to and give thanks to God about who this child is, Jesus Christ. And we don't know very much about Anna. We just know she's old. She's been a widow for most of her life. She basically lives in the temple. She's a prayer warrior. And, And through her prayer life, she has this intimacy with God. And she's able to recognize Jesus for who he is. We don't know exactly what she says. We don't actually have a quote from her. All we know is that uh, she, it says in verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now there's something we're going to pull from this. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. I want you to get to the end. There's one last story about the childhood of Jesus. It's the rest of the second chapter of Luke, Luke 2, 41 through 52. And Luke skips ahead to when Jesus is 12 years old. His parents and extended family have made their way back to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And after the feast is over, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph end up traveling one day's journey north towards Nazareth, halfway home, before they realize that Jesus isn't with them. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, that's not very responsible. You know. Well... The thing you have to realize is that within this culture, whenever this large caravan of the family was going, you know, for the festival and then returning home, the women and children would go first and the men would follow. Now, Jesus is 12. So what that means is that he is one year away from being formally recognized as a man. The age 13 was the formal age that you stepped into manhood in the Jewish culture. So it stands to reason. It's very common sense. You can see how this would happen, that Mary and the kids leave And Joseph is thinking Jesus is with Mary and the kids because he's still a kid. He's 12. But Mary and the kids leave thinking that Jesus has stayed with Joseph because he's almost 13. And it's it's a very, very plausible situation to understand how they could go a day's journey before they get caught up with each other and understand (laughs) Jesus is not with, with either of them. And, of course, then they spend a day looking all the way back. And on the third day, they find Jesus. And where is he? He's in the temple. And uh, Luke tells us that the teachers are gathered around him and he is listening to them and he's asking questions. And he tells us in verse 47 that everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But now Mary and Joseph are understandably miffed at this point. (laughs) And uh, so Mary confronts Jesus and she says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And the 12-year-old Jesus replies, why were you searching for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? (laughs) And Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph did not understand what he was saying to them. Yeah, I translate that verse to say that Jesus lost all camel privileges. He was walking home. Uh, they They were not satisfied with that answer. But once again, Mary treasures up these things in her heart, which is to say, you know, this is probably the first time she's ever pulled this story out, 
is when Luke interviews her. And it's, it's the story that Mary chooses to tell Luke about Jesus as a child. And it's really the only one we have of, of, these, of these years around the, the teenage years. Now, what's important to notice about this final story in Jesus' childhood? Well, what you have to notice is that Jesus is beginning to understand who he is. And who was this man? Who was Jesus? He was the son of his father. And he was naturally going to be about the work of his father. Now, no one in the scriptures ever refers to God as my father. No one. People would say things like our father in heaven, but they would never actually refer to God simply as my father. Jesus is the first and the only. He refers to God as my daddy. So Jesus is, is answering these questions to, to the teachers about God at the age of 12. So who he will become and who he already is is clearly revealed. It's revealed when? Before he's ever born by the angels to Mary and Joseph. It's revealed when he is born by the angels to the shepherds and then confirmed by Simeon and Anna. And then here, a year before he enters adulthood, even Jesus helps us to understand this is who he is. He is the Messiah. Now, you have to understand for Luke, that's important. Jesus didn't somehow just be a good moral man and then God chose him to be the Messiah out of all the men in the world. This is always who Jesus was before he was born, when he was born, even when he was 12. And this is a critical theological point that you, you, you have to hold on to. Now, what does that mean for us this morning? In light of all of these things that we learned in these childhood narratives, what does that mean for who we are? And I want to just give you four little nuggets before we close. Number one, I think it's clear from this scripture and from what we learned about who Jesus is that we are not an accident. Just as the life of Jesus demonstrates God's forethought, so also we can assume, we can conclude from reading this that God has the same degree of forethought about who you are and about who I am that he did with Jesus. Now, Jesus was God's act of salvation. That is singularly his fate. But rest assured that every single person in this room, every single person at Quivera, every single person who has ever been created was thought about by God and was created to have a, a purpose, an extraordinary eternal, significant purpose in their lives. And that leads me to my next point. I think what we can also learn from who Jesus is and these stories within the text, I think we can conclude that God works to reveal to us who we are. I mean, isn't it extraordinary how God used such a wide assortment of people to reveal the identity of Jesus Christ? We haven't even spoken of John the Baptist, and of course that was his whole purpose in life, was to reveal and prepare the way for Jesus Christ. But God sends angels who speak to the parents, then angels who speak to the shepherds, and of course the shepherds speak to anyone who would listen. God then sends the Holy Spirit to speak to a righteous religious man who then delivers the message to the parents of Christ. And God speaks to an old widow and, and who just loved to pray, and she also affirms the same redundant message 
You see, the redundancy of revelation concerning the identity of Christ helps us to understand that that same redundancy of communication, of revelation of your identity is something that God does. So I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about your life. Think about all the people who have been speaking into your life forever. Your parents, your grandparents, your aunt and uncles, your teachers, your preachers, your, your coaches. Complete strangers. See, God is absolutely committed to reveal your identity to you as to who you are. Not, not who you are in terms of being an American citizen or a man or a woman or, or uh, you know, this or that. Who God created you to be, who God thought about you to be before you were ever named. I think back on my life. I mean, it, was, it blew me away. I was, I was preparing this message. I, I started thinking about all the people who have been speaking into my life since childhood. And I just remember, you know, key, key things that I've always kind of held in my mind. I, I remember my mom and my dad and, and pastors in my little church where I grew up in Wisconsin, it seemed like everyone was constantly saying, Jim, God has a, a special plan and purpose for your future. You're special. At the age of nine, I, I told my grandmother that I'd be a pastor. When I was 13 in the eighth grade, um, this man who I just revered and respected very quietly and privately told my mother, Jim West will never be an also-ran. Well, she told me that. I had no idea what an also-ran was. But I do now, and I still remember that. When I was, again, in the eighth grade, my social studies teacher pulled me out of class in the middle of a test. He put me out in the hallway, and he put my shoulders against the wall, and he said, West, you're a leader. When are you going to start leading? You know, I just, I remember that. I remember that because it helped me to, I just began, oh, I'm a leader. You know, God will use all kinds of people and all kinds of methods to speak your identity into your life. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is what God is constantly trying to do in all of our lives. I don't know if you've seen the movie Evan Almighty. It's a great illustration. You know, he he wants Evan to build an ark, and so he keeps waking up uh, to a clock that says 614, and it's General Electric, but the, all the letters are, are blacked out except G-E-N, Genesis 614, which is the command to build the ark. And wherever he goes, it's just 614 wherever he goes. And this, this is the way that God works. In everything that you see and everything that you hear, he's constantly trying to reveal to you your identity. You matter. There's a special purpose that God has for your life. Number three, because of who Jesus is, we discover our true intentions, our true motives, and our thoughts in light of who he is. It, if you think about it, you will know if you have been redeemed by the attitude in your heart towards Jesus Christ. This is what he says. If the name Jesus Christ brings you joy and delight, if the mere mention of the name inspires hope and courage and leads you to action, then you will find yourself as one who has been lifted up out of death and despair. However, if the name of Jesus Christ brings about dread or anger or even worse, 
much worse if it means nothing to you at all, then you must carefully consider who you are becoming. You see, C.S. Lewis once said that we are all becoming one of two things. We are either becoming immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There's no middle ground. We are all becoming something that will extend beyond our last breath. And Jesus Christ will be the way that you know what you are becoming and who you are becoming. That's what it says. And we are all becoming something. And finally, number four, Jesus Christ is God's act of salvation for all people. That's who Jesus is. So what does that mean? It means that we are the people in need of God's salvation. The Gospel of Luke is written for us so that we will know with certainty who Jesus is and consequently who we are. We are those in need of redemption. And we know this because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world. God doesn't send a Savior unless there is something that needs to be saved. And so we know who Jesus is, a Savior. That means we know who we are. We are those who need to be saved. You know, when that hits home, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sins, and he convicts me of my sins, and we repent, when Jesus Christ is then living in us and in redeeming our lives, then we will know ourselves. Our identity will be we have been saved. We are those who have been saved. We have been rescued. We are those people who have been who've been plucked out of the mess. We have been made clean. We have been set free. If your identity is one who has been saved, then that will inform everything that you do with your life. You will understand that you are one who has been sent to proclaim that identity to the rest of the world. How many of you did your life change when it, when it finally settled in? I have been saved. I have been rescued. I have been forgiven. I have been set free. Our whole identity is really wrapped up in one singular truth. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Everything you need to know about who you are is in that phrase. If you will think on that, meditate on that concept day and night, you will not question your place in this world. You will know who you are. You are a person who has been saved. Lord, for most of us, we get this all wrong. We start out in a place thinking that the world revolves around us, that the world is our oyster, that we get to choose who we are and what we're going to do and what we're going to be about, and we see if religion fits into our plan. But here's the worldview that Luke gives us, that Jesus Christ historically came into the world as the Savior of the world, as the light of the world. And that changes everything because now we're not the center of the universe and it's not all about us. It's about you and your story and what you did. And our place in this world is those who need to be saved and as believers is those who have been saved. And with that comes great glory and great joy and great responsibility. And I pray that we'll live into our identity as those in need of redemption and those who are being saved. Lord, I pray that we are becoming something of everlasting splendor, that every day, by virtue of your grace, the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we will be growing into something that will bring you glory, that will bring peace and love and joy and benefit 
to the world, to the poor, to the lost, to the orphans, to the widows. Remind us every day of who you are that we might discover once again who we are. In the name of Christ, amen.